0: Welcome to The Buzz with ACT-IAC, your source for the hot topics and top issues affecting the federal technology market. Join us each week to hear insights from government and industry experts, stay informed on the challenges facing the public sector, and gain access to valuable reports and thought leadership. Enjoy. Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to ActIAC. iac Health Innovation Summit. I'm Kami zabdur with Deloitte. I'm joined today by a very dear friend, a fellow Texan, and hands down the best and most hardworking U.S. representative we have in Congress, the Honorable Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee. Congresswoman Jackson Lee is an influential and forceful voice in Congress and around the world. She is serving her 14th term as a member of the U.S. House of Representatives. She represents the 18th Congressional District of Texas, which is centered in Houston. Um, which is also the energy capital of the world. Uh, She sits on several important congressional committees as a senior member of the House committees on the Judiciary, Homeland Security, and the Crucial Budget Committee. And she also chairs the Judiciary Subcommittee on Crime, Terrorism, and Homeland Security. She's also the founder and co-chair of the Bipartisan Congressional Coronavirus
1: Task Force. Uh, Congresswoman, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be with you, Cumbies, and uh, please give Pepper my regards. That's an insight, (laughs) (laughs) I need to know who Pepper is. I'm still waiting for Pepper to be able to uh, join my uh, district and uh, visit us, but uh, we got stopped by the pandemic, didn't we?
0: We did, we did, absolutely, looking forward to it.
1: You know, so before we jump
0: in, I mean, there's so many topics uh, that we could cover, you know, about COVID um, and and we could probably talk about for hours. Um, But before we start, why why don't you take us back to to over a year ago, um, you know, give us uh, you know five minute overview of, of what you observe to be you know some of the key takeaways from COVID. Um, you know, our response to the virus and, and, and your work in this space. I mean, you don't see you don't run into too many con- members of Congress uh, who are opening testing sites and running vaccination clinics and, and getting vaccines in arms like you've been doing.
1: Well, thank you so very much. And, and let me first of all thank the American Council for Technology, uh, the Industry Advisory Council, and Deloitte. Uh, for this session. You're right, Cumbies. I can tell you that um, I have uh, served on the Homeland Security Committee since the uh, Terrorist Act of 9-11. But in the course of that work, uh, I took and take very seriously domestic security, national security uh, as the landscape uh, presents itself. So it is not just terrorists flying in planes and uh, horrifically hitting the World Trade Center. Uh, but it is uh, the likes of uh, cyber attacks and ransomware and of course pandemics. Uh, Early on in the uh, years preceding this pandemic, uh, I happen as you do live in Houston and there are a number of infectious disease specialists who understand uh, what's happening to the world. Partly some of this happens because of climate change to be frank with you. But as you well know, we confronted the Zika virus, H1N1 uh, and Ebola. And they were, I think, test cases uh, for America. I'm not saying that we particularly did that well, to be very honest with you. Ebola, of course, um, we didn't get a handle on it um, and individuals were exposed. People came into hospitals and weren't diagnosed. Uh, Nurses were not, uh, medical professionals weren't properly dressed. And so we know that we had an Achilles heel. So about, um, let's say this is 2021, June, Um, I would say January, February, the first press conference I did regarding the pandemic uh, was, I believe, in February. I believe it was February 10th when I went to the Houston Intercontinental Airport as a member of Homeland Security and wanted to know whether or not the airport was prepared to assess individuals coming in um, from, you know, at that time, Asia, China. uh, But um, I'll tell you a story about this. I'll try to do this very quickly. to determine whether or not uh, we could prevent people who may be sick, who may be carriers. Did we have a testing protocol? Uh, What were we doing to protect our uh, frontline workers like Customs and Border Protection, uh, TSAs, TSOs, officers, et cetera? Um, And to be honest with you, we weren't that quite prepared. In a hearing in Homeland Security, I asked um, the deputy of NIH, as I can recall, about when they first heard of COVID-19. And to my dismay, they said around August, or excuse me, around October, or November of 2019. So we were not prepared. Mm -hmm. Um, And I went further to uh, then have another, when I do these press conferences is to wake up people to bring people together who are specialists. And we did another one uh, to wake up the community and saying we think COVID-19 is going to require major attendance. And shortly thereafter, we organized a coronavirus bipartisan task force, submitted it to the U.S. House uh, to expedite it getting established because we knew that was going to be important. So, what I would say to you is that I was disappointed. One, uh, this, this is not a, a partisan issue. It shouldn't matter what president is in office to mm. take care of the American, uh, the, the the domestic uh, requirements for security, uh, safety, and health uh, for the American people. I'm disappointed that. Uh, There were officials who were aware of COVID uh, in the fall and winter of 2019. uh, And then further disappointed of our lack of preparation. So that's why we organized the Coronavirus Task Force, of which we can talk about later more extensively. But that's why um, I then began to see that testing was like a privilege. It was amazing. There were people fighting and struggling to get tested. they were talking about appointments and uh, bring, your, bring your healthcare card. And this was a, I don't think we grasped that this was a pandemic, that the best thing we could do for the American people is raise up the public health infrastructure and test mm-hmm. everybody, everybody. And so we took that uh, philosophy, worked with a, well, now a small hospital, um, United Memorial um, uh, Hospital, and uh, medical center, excuse me. And um, we began testing the first day on March 19. And I'll just end with this. Uh, We opened it up, we said no pre-registration because as I said, we were testing people like they had to have a gold permission slip uh, rather than recognizing what this was. And we needed to be fanning out across the uh, Harris County, across the state of Texas, just testing people wherever they were. But when we opened up this site, We told people you didn't have to pre-register, just come. People were lined up, it was a Northside Hospital, as far out 45 as, uh, and this is, we're talking to people from around the the country, but in any event, down the freeway and and miles into another community, the cars were lined up. And in the course of people coming in, there were individuals that we had to remove from their cars and immediately place them in the hospital. That's what we were facing even in March, and that's why I believe uh, we have to uh, learn from that for anything that comes at us again. Thank you, Congresswoman. I mean, you know, you, you talked about this, um, you know,
0: how you were able to uh, get members of Congress uh, from both parties organized, uh, you know, which is which is no small feat in itself. And, and you founded, you know, the bipartisan Congressional Coronavirus Task Force. You know, I understand it's been reestablished for the 117th Congress. Um, you know, can you, can you tell us a little bit more about sort of the task force and, um, and, and you sort of talked about this already, sort of what it is, but, you know, why was it formed and, and maybe provide sort of an update from the task force and, and, and what some of their thinking is post-pandemic?
1: Well, first of all, I think it's very important to take note of the fact uh, that we broke uh, the, the uh, how should I say it, uh, we broke the stigma of uh, recognizing uh, that this was an American issue. I was delighted to get uh, co-chairs from California, Pennsylvania, and Texas, Uh, meaning myself from Texas, Dr. Reeves, an emergency room doctor, now congressperson from California, and then the East Coast, uh, Brian Fitzpatrick. What a combination. 30 members who joined the uh, caucus uh, because they too wanted to be informed. Uh, We immediately were dispatched to our districts because COVID was spreading everywhere. Um, and the kind of structure we have in the House of Representatives. We are close to each other. Uh, Tragically, we lost a member of uh, uh, Congress uh, that died because of COVID-19. Certainly uh, 600,000 people died, but you understand we are uh, the most powerful lawmaking body uh, in the world, in essence. Uh, And uh, we're not uh, as big as one would think, uh, representing over 300 million people. So losing one, Uh, is precious and and, and devastating. Not only did we have the loss of ones, but we had infected members, infected staff persons. Uh, We had members hospitalized. So we were out of uh, that uh, environment. So it was necessary to have this uh, task force uh, so that we could um, continue to marshal uh, our collective experience and expertise, provide input into the health policy, such as advocating for more testing, advocating for non uh registered testing, don't register anyone, just test them, advocating for testing all of the staff, testing members, not that we we're above one, but to show as an example that testing needs to be across America. We were on calls where members of Congress would be saying, in my district, I can't get testing for my constituents. How does that reflect on what and who America is? We can't find testing. we can't get tested and so. That was part of unfortunately uh, the Achilles heel again of the past administration's rollout. There was a lot of talking, there was expertise coming across the airwaves, but in terms of implementing what should have been done, that testing protocol, because we did not have uh, treatment protocols that could do anything but try to um, extend life and then possibly cure you. Um, We immediately jumped to ventilators. We were on calls where, People, hospitals could not get ventilators. Governors were competing in the open space marketplace against each other, as opposed to ventilators coming in from the federal government, which they should have. So our caucus, our task force, uh, was uh, to discern uh, where the weak points were. And so for one of the meetings we had, the participation of Christopher Krebs, we've all seen his name, a director of CISA, that's under Homeland Security, And he spoke about the responsibilities of CISA for defining and providing guidance on how to best protect essential workers, Um, using technology to fight um, COVID-19. We met with Dr. Robert Redfield. If you remember, you've seen him on air. Uh, He was um, uh, leading the CDC at that time uh, to talk about how we can educate people to protect themselves against COVID-19. If I take you down memory lane, you remember people were talking about wiping off things. We now come how many months later and people saying, well, it really doesn't spread by surfaces. Uh, It's airborne. But we were wiping off things. We were taking off shoes. We were taking off clothes. Um, So the task force wanted to get to the bottom of what was happening. Uh, We worked on the CARES Act, of course, and the task force joined a letter to request that the current COVID-19 appropriations bill, under consideration at the time, include $155 billion in funding to aid our nation's hospitals during the coronavirus pandemic. So we, we thought that um, uh, what we were able to do is to bring east, west, uh, and uh, southwest uh, together uh, to speak on behalf of our uh, colleagues and on behalf of the um, needs of the nation at the time. Oh, no, thank you for that. I mean, I, I'd like to, I mean, you, you kind of raised this already, but sort
0: of the issue of of testing. As sort of a a privilege initially was seen, right, and sort of this sort of this speaks to sort of the issues of healthcare inequality and and sort of access to care. Um, You know, it's been said by by many experts that when our country gets a cold, you know, African Americans get pneumonia, Um, and and I think that we saw this in, in the percentages of people who were infected. Who are African American and and sort of the, the the you know increased you know number of deaths from COVID as a result, um, you know Congresswoman, have you seen sort of evidence of healthcare disparities uh, during COVID and and sort of what are some of your reflections on how uh, care was provided uh, to to some of the hardest hit of communities?
1: You know I just um, uh, thank you, Cumby, for that uh, question. That is both an emotional and um, um, policy focused question uh, that should be a front and center. Um, Because I was so immersed in the issue, um, one of the things that I did as the chair of the Coronavirus Task Force is to encourage my local media to get involved. And I encouraged them to do the first uh, town hall televised meeting on the Coronavirus or COVID-19. And I brought in from New York Presbyterian and Dr. Williams who I had engaged with in another uh, discussion because I'm involved. I had asked for who I could talk to because as everyone knows, New York was so hard hit. Uh, and he explained at that time, and the early video that we saw on the uh, various national news stations was right out of New York, and right out of New York Presbyterian where operating rooms became um, hospital uh, bedrooms, hall, hallways were filled with patients. And that's where this particular doctor worked. And he explained that there were African-Americans or people of color coming into New York emergency rooms when COVID-19 hit. And I think we should also recognize that the origins of how it got to the United States were Europeans. Uh, In my district or my community, it was a a number of individuals who went on an Italian uh, vacation, 15, and they came uh, back uh, to Houston uh, and they were infected, Um, a good number of them. And we know that in New York, it was some European travelers, Americans who traveled to Europe, who came back and were infected. But in any event, these persons were like essential workers living in public housing and otherwise. They went to the emergency room. They were people of color. Uh, they had no health care. Uh, they were given aspirins and and go home and uh, rest because it was not diagnosed. It, they didn't know what it was, and that spread. But more importantly, those persons lost their life because it was going. It was it was it was moving so fast was taking over the body so fast that if you didn't get hospitalized, uh, you were not gonna survive. It then hit uh, New Orleans. Many people realize that some of our uh, famous jazz uh, musicians and others died in New Orleans, which was a heavily African-American city. It hit Detroit, heavily African-American city. And then it began to spread uh, and it spread to Hispanic community, high numbers. In fact, I was just uh, taking a census out of one of our local hospitals uh, and the uh, uh, 90% of the patients in that hospital right now are Hispanic patients. So it, is, it was, it, it, it opened the cancerous sore of the lack of access to healthcare, which we've been fighting for with the Affordable Care Act, uh, which unfortunately in my state, uh, my governor did not take what we call the expanded Medicaid that would have given people a uh, hospital care. It also, I think, uh, had us look squarely into the needs of the public hospital system we need to build that system up. That system needs to be prepared in a pandemic to take everyone who needs care. It shouldn't be a question of whether or not they have insurance or don't have insurance, whether they were able to get Medicaid or not get Medicaid. It should be, it's a public health crisis, it's a pandemic. And if they have to put in mass units, and then at some point, um, the federal government finally caught up uh, and they were putting in, bringing in the military. In New York, they had to bring in one of the military ships uh, to deal with some of the uh, uh, the other cases of, uh, of uh, healthcare needs so that the hospitals that were on the ground could deal with the COVID-19 patients. But that's what we learned. We learned that when you don't have healthcare, I, I happen to be an advocate of HR 40, the lead sponsor that's the commission to study slavery and develop reparation proposals. I call it a repairing bill. Uh, and uh, Harvard University Medical School did a peer review study that indicated that if African-Americans had reparations, repair of this legacy of slavery before COVID-19, their numbers would not have been that high, which I assume their analysis was based upon the idea of the huge lack of healthcare, access to healthcare in minority populations and particularly African-Americans. So your, your question is, is well on, if you will. Uh, we continue to see that in other industries such as diabetes, heart disease, cancer, that the numbers are high uh, in uh, breast cancer among African-Americans. These numbers are high, um, and they are are probably uh, Uh, DNA-related. They are probably, um, I call it legacy-related in terms of poverty and uh, lack of good nutrition. But we were hit hard uh, by COVID-19. You're absolutely right. Well, Congresswoman, it's been an absolute delight. Uh,
0: you know, we could probably chat for hours and, and there's so many other topics that we could have hit on. Uh, you know, really want to thank you again, uh, for your time and thank you for your insights and, and for all that you've given to our country in this fight against COVID. You know, I have no doubt that you will, you know, continue to make a big impact that improves healthcare for all and, and, and keeps us safe. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, you know, really appreciate it.
1: May I just uh, indicate, uh, first, my appreciation to uh, this uh, summit. Uh, And I know that you'll continue throughout the day. And thank you for having me. And then secondarily, let me thank all of the first responders, all of the nurses, doctors, firefighters, police, uh, essential workers that we learned to appreciate, grocery store workers that we encountered that got very sick, uh, transit workers, TSOs, airport workers that got very sick. Um, because we were not prepared. Let me at least thank them for getting up every day and going to work. Um, It was in uh, a year ago that I wrote in the Houston Chronicle an op-ed that said uh, that COVID-19 equals a national security crisis, a national security um, uh, moment, and that healthcare, lack thereof, pandemics can uh, undermine national security. I hope we have learned our lesson. We should not let up. We should be studying COVID-19 now because uh it is still present the variants are present we're watching what's happening in india uh we're watching what has happened in south and central america so i would encourage continued uh collaboration technology can be very important and my final point is is that vaccinations i'm in my 15th 16th vaccination site i've moved from 56 testing site to now vaccinating and trying to use mobile units going into communities and just standing up a site and say look we're here ready to vaccinate you um get your children vaccinated pfizer is eligible um able to vaccinate your 12 year olds and we are finding now that 12 to 17 year olds are the sickest they're the ones that are being hospitalized uh and if we want to have open schools and to get our children educated and back and being the best and the brightest in the world we need children vaccinated 12 year olds and so We can be part of the solution and not part of the problem. We can be part of the prevention and not part of the spread. And so I encourage everyone, let's get working together, collaborate. This is an American uh, issue. Uh, It is for the family to work together. Collaboration is key. Thank you so much, Congressman. Thank you.
0: And that's a wrap on The Buzz with ACT-IAC. Join us next week for more hot topics and top issues affecting the federal technology market. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. And follow us on Twitter at ACT-IAC. More information about today's show can be found in the episode notes. For more insights, visit www.actiac.org. Thanks for listening.